Welcome to The Leadership Mindset, the podcast where we uncover the hidden gems of sales and business leadership. In each episode, our goal is to bring you up close and personal with the world's most accomplished business leaders. We explore their experiences, motivations, inspirations, and the challenges they've conquered on their way to the top. In today's episode, you can expect to learn insights into my guest's transition from an individual sales role to a leadership position and the challenges and strategies involved in empowering and trusting a team. You will also get his take on the importance of perseverance, both in professional settings and personal challenges, illustrated through personal stories like running a marathon on short notice. He also talks to me about the value of regular self-reflection and life planning, including practical tips on how to effectively assess and improve various aspects of one's life and career. So grab a coffee and enjoy the conversation with today's guest, Rob Murphy. Rob Murphy, you're very welcome to the podcast. It's good to be here, Paul. Thanks, Rob. Pleasure's all mine, Rob. Rob, I... I, I consensus an Irish accent you're based in London is it a Dublin accent Dublin area yes Clontarf originally okay yeah okay okay being a country boy myself what, what was it like growing up in in Clontarf uh, I loved it there I originally was in Griffith Avenue for about 12 years or so and then we moved to Clontarf I loved mm. being by the sea always very calming mm. going out for runs really through all different types of weather throughout the year down there. So it's something I definitely miss about living there. Yeah, I was going to say that there's not too much sea in London where you just disappear down one rabbit hole and then pop up and you're just looking around and it's more concrete. Yeah, it's, that's for sure. Yeah. Hey. Yeah, it's a wonderful city though. It's one of my favorite cities on the planet. What brought you to London? Yeah, so at the time I was working for Salesforce based out of Sandyford in Ireland and the sector I was covering was basically financial services customers of which all of them were pretty much in London. So I was traveling over almost on a weekly basis. So I got pretty tired of doing all the flying back and forth. And it felt like you were in London, but not in London because you weren't really there to enjoy it over the weekend. So mm. I decided just to take a bit of a gamble and go move and see how I feel. And I've been here ever since. Enjoying it? Yes. No, I really enjoy it. It's, it's so much to do. I've met my wife here as well. So yeah, just enjoying our life that we've made for ourselves there. It's good. That's it. That's it. I'm going to be carrying you out of a box now in London. That's it. Yeah. Game over. The, cha- the challenge is she's actually American <laughs> in New York. So who knows? Oh, okay. That's There's an adventure there somewhere because you are eventually going back to New York. That's it. That's something to look forward to. I think New York is cool. <laughs> Tell me, were you all, because I know you've been in sales for quite a while. Did I see somewhere that you started out as an analyst? Exactly. I'm like confusing you with somebody else. No, that's exactly right. A bit of an unusual path in. So actually, prior to that, I worked in hospitality briefly. And it got to a point where I realized it wasn't going to be able to really give me the life that I wanted to have enough like through that work. So I decided to explore different areas. And this kind of analyst type role came up at IBM, which essentially was like more like a sales op type role. So that's where I joined. And that's where I got the first exposure to what I'm might be like to work in sales because historically it was never really a career that I had really considered. So yeah, with getting exposed and I'm pretty fascinated earlier on, early on in terms of like 
how the team were just using technology, professional services to really solve challenging business problems. I got the bug back then and I've had it ever since. Mm. I'm wondering, because I, I was in pre-sales before I got into sales and pre, the pre-sales thing became because I, I, I had a technical background and then I looked over at sales and it looked so easy from the outside. I'm just wondering if you had that same experience that you went, I could do that. And then you try it and it's not so easy. Yeah, it was actually a funny story. So when I joined, it was like sales operations role. I was fascinated, probably still a little bit naive. I went to my managers and I was like, you know what? This operation role is great, but I actually think I really want to be on the sales team. And they said, thank you for your interest, but you've got like another 10 months left on your contract. So whilst I didn't get my wish, I did get a buy-in from them though to spend as much time with the sales team as possible as long as I continue to deliver the deliverables I had on a weekly basis. But a lot of those deliverables are actually quite repetitive tasks, like insights, reporting, things like that. So I thought like there must be, there has to be a better way of doing this. So I actually learned that like how to write macros, learned how to do some very basic code and essentially automated about 80% of my job, which meant then I'm going to spend all that time with the sales team who were like, I'm very grateful for They took me under their wing. They brought me along to discovery calls, workshops, negotiation calls. So I had like almost like a nine month crash course in how to work at IBM, how to sell the products and services that we offered. And then eventually when a role did come up, I moved straight into that, into that sales role. That's a wonderful way to get into sales. That, and it was really good of them to do that. But yeah, I guess it's one of the benefits of a company like IBM where you, yeah, there is that ability to do that. But yeah. And pre-sales was something similar for me because you were going on calls with because you were in pre-sales. So you, you did get some insight into that as well. I'm curious because you said something there about when you were in the analyst role, there was an itch that wasn't scratched or that needed to be scratched. And you were very deliberate about that, about getting into that. Was there anything in your younger years that might have been a clue to the fact that this was something that was in your future sales, in other words. Yeah, we did some of the classic things as a child, like going around trying to mow people's lawns, wash people's cars. My father definitely always encouraged me to have an entrepreneurial mindset early on. And that coupled with, I also did play a huge amount of sport growing up as well. So I felt like the entrepreneurial plus the competitive mindset of sport just almost drew me naturally into a, a self-type role. That is interesting, isn't it? I think it's one of the a great gifts. One of the biggest gifts you can give a child in terms of their development is to make them knock on doors and ask and learn how to take the rejection from some and the joy of succeeding with others. I think it sets them up nicely because no matter what place you're going to be in life, even if you're in a technical role, there's going to be those challenges later on in life where you've got to ask and not fear the rejection. So kudos. What were some of your motivations growing up? I really was inspired by people who just built really successful businesses. So really like growing up, I was like, I really would like to do that at some point, but I didn't really necessarily understand how I would do that or what would be the path I could follow to do that. It was actually like a little bit later on in my career, like I'd done four years, IBM was very fortunate. I went through some great training there, met some great people. And that's when I moved on a little bit and I heard 
firsthand from David Dempsey, who was one of the founding three people of Salesforce and EMEA, and heard his story about how he had gone and emailed Mark Benioff, thought it was a good opportunity to expand into the European region, and that they just went on this incredible journey together, really starting from the basics and just building out what Salesforce is today. It's just a huge in EMEA. Yeah, it was just, I started to see then, okay, like, tech seems to be a way of doing this. So yeah, that's why it was like, oh, this is super interesting. And maybe there's like lots of other companies, which of course Ireland's done very well from the foreign direct investment into tech in particular. So Ooh. yeah, that's what I, what I was inspired by. What if the company that we're working at in Particle, what if we can bring it and grow it to be as, uh, as big as the Salesforce in the future? In terms of what you're doing currently, what's giving you the greatest sense of satisfaction? I think uh, I look at satisfaction on several different levels like i do a quarterly life review and really evaluate my life on all different aspects so my career my my marriage my personal relationships personal development and really just take the opportunity once a quarter to really just reflect on kind of where i'm at and then where i want to go to so some of the things like it's always very deliberate i'm driving towards in terms of what's giving me the most what are keeping me motivated and i think we've done such a great job and the team's done such a great job in EMEA so far we've built out from particle it's just like how do we just continue to grow and learn together and continue to really build the business out to hopefully as big as in as successful as we can make it i talked to you about the professional side in a moment i want to go back more you said about the quarterly life plan i'm very interested in that i'd like you to talk me through the process and what I mean by that is, do you go somewhere on your own? Is it something you do at home? Is it something you do collaboratively with others? Then what are the various elements and what are you looking for in those? And then what's the output of the process? Yeah, I think it's usually take myself out of the current environment. I've actually found doing it in airports, really. Now the travel's back open, you've got a lot of dead time. So it's often a good time to so just pull out a journal and just start to take stock of where you're at. I try and keep the format similar so i'll basically do a i think almost like the pie of life you draw a circle you divide it into different segments like everybody is in the same amount of time as everybody else just about how you spend it then i'll just go through and rank myself on a scale of one to ten all of the different aspects how do i feel i'm doing professionally how do i feel i'm doing in my own relationships in personal like development in other things that i find that are fun like i might where am I at on all of those different aspects? And basically give you a zero to 10 score of draw. That doesn't become a circle, right? There's always got to be bits that you're down on and other bits that you're really good on. And then just like deep dive into each one of those to really just try and decide if it's great, like 10 out of 10, fantastic. Like what are the things that are actually causing it to be great? And what are the things I can continue doing? If it's not where I want it to be, then what is the reason that it's not there? And what are some of the things I could do over the next 90 days to actually try and rectify that? The in terms of who I do with, I have historically done it just by myself, but I've recently I've also started doing it. I've just been followed by my wife, so it's always been a, an interesting conversation. But again, it just means that everyone's like kind of knows where we're at, what are the things that are important that we want to be doing more of, and how do we go and actually go and do that. Do you go down the road of vision boards? Not so much vision boards. I just try and keep it. I'm a very data-driven person. So I like to have be able to quantify how I'm feeling and then ultimately be able to measure, am I making progress or not? Okay. I'd like to go just a little bit deeper in that because to me, the what I'm curious about is the data bit, which is very 
subjective in itself, but look at that and say, how do I feel, which is very subjective and open to all sorts of the mood you're in the moment, what happened to you that morning, subconscious influences that might affect how you see things. And I'm wondering how, is that something you even think about or worry about and take into account? Or is it just, look, at the moment, here's how I feel and that's what's important. Yeah, it's, it's a good call out. I think what I do is I kind of journal pretty frequently. So when I sit down to do that, I'll have a quick flick through all of the last 90 days worth of energy. Sometimes there's, yeah, lots. Sometimes there's not as much. I just try and do a quick recap. So it, it almost removes the, oh, I spilled a coffee on myself this morning and I feel terrible type of influence on the score that I might have. Tell me about something or how you might have changed something, either direction or gained a really important insight that's influenced your thinking as a result of that process? Yeah, I mean, there's been several things, like some things are quick fixes. So am I spending enough time with my family at home in Ireland? For example, it's, how do I score myself there? Should I spend more time there? So you, if it's a yes, that's easy, right? Just got to book more flights, plan out in advance to go back and see them. Mm. But there's been other things that when I look at things, you know, it could even be like, fitness related like how am i feeling health wise so a lot of that's just around habit once you create good habits it's relatively easy you get up in the morning mm-hmm. you go work out you eat well etc so i think there's been some things that are like quick fixes they just book more flights it's easy other things are like how do i create a very conscious habit and again just starting to break things into small chunks so if i wanted to go run a marathon or something like that how do i just when I start and embark on that journey, just like what are the first two weeks look like and just have very relentless mm-hmm. focus on those first two weeks, just get a rebel in. And then as you start to build momentum, the habit starts to build and then it just gets a lot easier from there. I'm very interested in the whole idea of journaling. I've dipped in and out of myself many times and I've always found it beneficial, but struggle to make it a habit. And I'm just wondering, I don't know if that's personality driven or something else, but certainly beneficial. And I know certainly when I started my first working with Sandler, that was something that was beaten into us, like journal every day and get a sense of why I was asking about the subjective versus objective was one of the things we were taught was to rate ourselves both in terms of the, our identity, our role, our sense of ourself in the world, which is a very subjective thing versus how did I do, which is, tends to be more objective. And the interesting thing was, and I remember Sander talking about this, and now I never met the man, but it was on a recording. And he was talking about the very day that you feel bad and you think you're having a bad day, maybe the day you sowed a seed with a prospect that 30 days later, you're out having a productive conversation. And you go back and you look at your journal, you're, in, you're having a bad day that day, but hang on a second. This was the day it all started. And it, I like that idea because it teaches you then to not judge how you feel about yourself by what kind of a day you're having and to isolate the two, that you could have a bad day from a productive point of view, but it doesn't mean you're a bad human. And I'm just wondering if that's part of your thinking as the process or what you're trying to get out of it as well. Yeah, I think the other thing is like, really, like there are usually a lot of wins every day that you can just gloss over and they could be small wins, but just taking the time to like really go review. So to your point about making a habit, I've read Atomic Habit by James Clear 
And one of his biggest recommendations was like, you have to make it so obvious that you have to do it. So first thing, I get up in the morning, make my bed, put my journal on my pillow. So when I go to bed at night, it's literally there. There's no excuses. It reminds me. It's very obvious. I just have to go just journal. But yeah, it's like a good way of recapping the day. What were the wins? Because there are winds that just pass us by that we need to sometimes shine a light on. And then all those winds just build to momentum. And yeah, that's how I make it a daily habit. I think the person who actually inspires me most is my sister, Laura. So Laura has a series of chronic health conditions, but in spite of that, she continues to have the most unwavering positivity and still continues to run her own business as well. So honestly, like she is one of my biggest inspirations. I think beyond that, just other family members that I've really looked at that have gone on to achieve great things. Yeah, it's interesting because it takes away all the excuses that we often put in the way of why we don't achieve when you see somebody else like that. It's, yeah. It's nice as well as somebody in your family. I've asked that question many times and for different reasons. It could be sometimes it can be somebody you've never met, but I always think it's, there's something heartwarming or something that's probably goes deeper when it's your family member. I think it's, because you see somebody else do it who has a different background or maybe you can't identify with the same way. It's nice, but I don't know that it affects you the same way as somebody close to you like that. Yeah, that's nice. Talk to me a little bit about the leadership journey. So going from, I know, I think it was the last sales role, was, role you were in, was that Salesforce or there was one after that? And then you got into management role. And I want to, spend a little bit of time on that transition because it's often the most difficult one and for people listening to this who are facing that I'd like to get a sense of some of the obstacles you faced both in yourself and working with others that you had to overcome yeah I think it was interesting because at the end of my time at Salesforce I was a former SVP of global sales but what I wanted to do was get into startups and help startups scale out their businesses in EMEA and a good, like the first time I had experience of that was in, in Salesforce, there was an acquisition I worked for called Pardot. The head of sales at Pardot then subsequently left, went to Spread Social, and I messaged him wanting to see if he was expanding it into Europe anytime soon. So after a while, I ended up joining as the first person in EMEA for Spread Social. So like I went from this huge environment at Salesforce, lots of resources to like literally in my flat in London. It's like, this is the beginning of this new journey. So we had, I would say like an enterprise like squad that we built up. So as myself, we had an SE, a customer success manager, and a few other resources that really helped us build that enterprise business out. So I think taking that experience through to through to Lytics and that's through to particle, like it is a difficult transition make because when you're a seller, you're like, You've got quarterbacking the deals. You're being in control of everything, right? You've got your playbook. You've got your resources. You know what shots you need to call. And you need to go from that position of being in control of everything almost to having to trust your team to be in control of everything. And you're almost like a little bit removed, but you have to build a team up. So I think that one of the hardest things that I struggled with at the beginning was like just like wanting to be deeply involved with everything. Like I, I quickly found that like the, you're just running out of hours in the day to do this across the sales team it's not really being productive and ultimately i came to the conclusion that you know if we want to go fast sure i can try and do as much as i can with the team and just 
be all over it myself. But at some point, we're going to run out of steam. But if we want to go far, we got to build the team up. We got to enable them and we got to empower them to really go on to be the next set of leaders. That's probably some advice. I think the transition, you're going to have lots of control and then you're going to have to be trusting others to ultimately execute. And yeah, I think maybe one other one, which is, it's a pretty famous Nelson Mandela quote, but listen first, speak last. So really get all the viewpoints in the room and that really will help inform your decision-making process and should help you ultimately deliver best outcomes. I'm wondering what you learned about yourself in coming through that transition. Yeah, I think there's things I knew, there's things I didn't know, and then there's probably lots of things I didn't know I didn't know. So again, I think it's just being a constant student, like always wanting to learn. So I think, yeah, that's, I remember I, when I did my master's, there was like one article which was that we read was like the incomplete leader. And I talked about the fact that you will never really become an expert of everything, nor should you ever really strive to be an expert on everything. There's always going to be things you don't know. So I think like actually getting comfortable with that was something I definitely learned about myself because I'd approach it from, no, I want to know everything. And I want to be able to be an expert and help out with any question that comes up. But actually, in fact, that's probably misguided. So I learned through the process that like, it's actually, again, building that team and empowering the team and being able to bring in the experts in certain areas as you need to. I like that. It's what it sounds or feels like to me is that instead of learning how to answer the questions, it's what questions should I be asking? Because if you know those, then you there's almost somebody else can answer them. But you're saying they're the experts. It's like the, I think it was Ford or somebody like that, as of Ford Motor Company. He had... He, Legend has it, and I might have the number wrong, that he had five buttons on his desk. And uh, somebody asked him about, how do you manage all this? And he says, this is how, and he presses one button and head of finance comes in, he presses another button, head of sales comes in, and he says, these are the experts. And he just, now, I'm sure I've taken license with that. I'm sure somebody else has as well. But the philosophy behind it always stuck with me, that it's not necessary, that the smartest person in the room is the one who knows other people are smarter. In, um, in given topics, right? Yeah, yeah. And so tell me, what's wh- where would you like to take your career? What would you like to, what's the trajectory in your own mind? Yeah, at the moment, I I think we're still at the early stages of our plan that we had with Particle. So I joined and been here about two years. We put a strategy in place of where we wanted to take the business. So really, I'm uh, just excited to continue that journey and really grow out from there. And I think Ugh. in the future, who knows what will happen. Mm. It's an interesting role to be in now where we're seeing like VP sales of me in it. And maybe there's people who are transitioning into GM roles, transitioning into C-level roles from there. And other people are even transitioning out into completely different fields like VC to ultimately help companies grow and scale their businesses or help them grow out. And I mean, so I think what's exciting is that the skill set that I'm really focused on building out is transferable to lots of different companies, lots of different industries. And really for me, it's about like we set out the plan and it's really about the excitement and the journey of going mm. on that plan and getting to the stage that we want to be at together as a team. And we set it, we set the strategy two years ago in, in four years time, we're going to sit around a room and we're going to say, we built this together. And 
that's going to be great mm-hmm. to have gone on that journey and, and done that all together. Tell me something about yourself, Rob, that probably nobody you work with knows about you, an experience you've had, maybe somebody you've met, something you've done, hobby, pastime, work, it doesn't matter, just something you feel that you enjoyed or that was surprising or interesting to you that maybe nobody knows about you. I don't know if this counts, but I did break my finger in three places and snapped my tendons playing a non-contact sport. Despite having played Gaelic football and hurling for 15 years and never had a hand injury. So that was... That tag rugby by any chance. It was indeed tag rugby, yeah. Yeah. There are more injuries come from tag rugby than any other sport that I know of. Yeah. It's, I did the same and the same thing. I didn't break fingers, fortunately, but when you push one back and it's, yeah, that was the end of that. (laughs) <laughs> let me go back to taekwondo any day because at least then i know what i'm trying to dodge yeah major sport when you're younger as well or is it something you're you do you have time for participating rather than observing i think it's something that i may want to get back into in the future like i mm. yeah, i play a lot of hurling so i like racket type sports that are fast and intense went through a period of squash squash league to try and again racket sports it's fast, it's intense. But I think in terms of team sport, on the grander scale, probably won't be something what I've just substituted is things I can fit around, again, fit around the life that I have now. It's very different to the life I had when I was when I was younger. So yeah, just it's a lot more gym routines. It's a lot more like little things like squash as well. I'm, I'm have in mind your focus on creating balance and integration in different aspects of your life. And clearly with Empire, you're very busy on that and growing that. What do you do to counteract that in terms of hobbies, pastimes? How do you unwind? Yeah, I think I think it's about balance. I think Empire feels great and that we give what we call quarterly reboot days. So the whole company basically takes the day off to really ultimately unwind and relax and do whatever you know, you do to help you do that. But one thing I actually focus on is actually driving. I, I love driving, I love cars. I always have and since I think it grew up early watching Formula One, doing the entrepreneurial, like cleaning cars as a small, as a kid. And I've always been interested in cars all my life. So quite often uh, it's actually just going for like a drive out to the countryside, get out into some isolated roads early in the morning and just, uh, just enjoy the scenery, the drive. Rip, ripping the road up. Is that what you re- that's what you really think? You said that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let me ask you it this way. What car is this? I've always been at the first model car I ever got when I was a kid was, was a Porsche 911. You know, one of the things I've been driving towards in my career has been like, can I put myself into a position where I could buy and maintain an own one? Yeah, that's mm. been, the, been the one for me. That did our cost. And they tried several times to come out with derivatives of Guinness. And I don't know that they've succeeded. However, I digress. Yeah, maybe a couple of personal questions in terms of your perspective on things. If you were Minister for Education and you could make one subject mandatory on the secondary curriculum, what would that be and why? I think the life of sales is often tarnished with the wrong brush. And I wonder, like, Mm. through education, are there ways that we could encourage more people to actually consider a career in sales. Because when I was growing up in school, it was very simple. It was like, we're going to push you towards being a lawyer, 
a doctor or an accountant. And I came to my family of accountant, really knew that wasn't for me. And I wasn't too interested in medicine or legal studies either. So I think like it would be there is something around encouraging people to be more entrepreneurial. So there's so much written about like startups now and like it's never been easier to do a startup now as it has like in the past, especially in the tech world. So like what if we encourage people to do companies like try and create an MVP, try and create a website, try and build something. I think that could be super interesting. And then I think what builds off from that, I think some level of, again, like computer science, mm. I think would be super interesting given the direction the world is going. Yeah. No, I I like that. I've seen some transition years that they do in school where if they've got a good transitions teacher who's focused on that, they'll do things like, even it's something as simple as starting a tuck shop, something, but gives people a sense of, I have to buy, I have to sell, I have to manage cash flow, just even the basics of running a business. But you're right, it's hugely inconsistent and it's certainly not mandatory. And I would love to see something like that for sure. And I and think it's they're based. doing it. Oh, sorry. Oh, please go ahead. It's mostly based on the concept of it as well. What's thought? It's not based on mm. actual practical application. And that's, that's where you learn a lot more when you've got to go through the situations, you've got to go through the scenarios. So everyone yeah. knows, oh, cash is key. Great. Yeah. Unless you have a business where you're like, oh, I've got to pay all this stuff. I don't have any money this one. That's like yeah. the best lesson that you'll ever, yeah. ever get. And I think it's like, how do you make yeah. those sort of experiences even more, maybe not the cash flow one, but how do you encourage people to experiment and try things out? And because inevitably lots of things yeah. aren't going to work and that's okay, but the one, one or two things mm-hmm. that do work are usually going to be quite meaningful and will help somebody in the world in some way. I remember in school, this is more by way of saying to celebrate how things have advanced and how much better they are, is when I was in secondary school, there was something like 77 jobs you you were told you could do. There was literally a leaflet for every job type. And what was more disturbing was they were ranked and there was five levels. And the lowest level was, I'm going to, I don't remember exactly, but there were pretty manual jobs where you didn't need any qualifications for. And then level two might've been a semi-professional job. Threes was then the professional there and you'd have some things in there, like some of the trades I think were level two and then level three up where maybe you could be a photographer, an artist or a design, well, maybe even I don't know, designers exist, certainly not Photoshop ones. They would have been drafts person. That's our drafts. No, they wouldn't. They would have been draftsman. That's what it would have been. And then at the very top, it was doctors, lawyers, architects. And you actually looked at that and you decided what type of a person you were, not at a, a conscious level, but you looked at where you fit into the hierarchy. That was the system. And so we've come a long way. And that's to be celebrated. None of that bullshit. For sure. Yeah. So we were talking about, yeah, the what would you make mandatory? Coding, I think, is something else you mentioned that is something I think everybody should do because you made the point that it's never been easier to start a business, which, again, fully subscribe to. You have the world's largest CRM at everybody's fingertips, LinkedIn. You can build a website in minutes, maybe. There's no excuse. Why do you think more people don't do it? 
I think it's probably completely out of that comfort zone. And it is hard. It's just learning a new language at the beginning. Like it's going to be very difficult. You're going to feel stupid. You're going to be like, oh, it's tough. I don't know how to move from this to that. And it's only through the, again, the iteration, the learning that eventually if you trust the process, you'll get there. I think there's like lots of great tools out there. Like I've used Code Academy in the past. You can sign up, you can just do self-paced class. It's all about iteration. It's all about like actually applying the skills. And I'm not by any means like an engineer, but it certainly helped me to empathize more with a lot of the people and that we're, and we have as customers in terms of what their day-to-day is like when they're having to manage code bases and integrations with different tools. And I've seen, seen it through that learning, how difficult it can be and how we ultimately add value on a particle. What are you seeing in the sales space? What, sorry, what changes have you noticed in the sales space over the last few years that you've been involved that you welcome and then also you cast an eye on and think, oh, I'm not so sure about this? Yeah, I think there's probably like a few things that are interesting. As always, like buyers continue to be way more informed than they ever have been before. I think by the time they come through and they actually want to speak to a salesperson, they've probably gone through their process of, I've got a problem. Let me research some solutions to the potential problem. Let me actually define what I might need in that solution and then let me go purchase it. Like, I think they're getting further and further along that journey before they're willing to interact. So that I think that almost, it almost drives people to like really think about sales as being a function of both sales and marketing together so we can have that right dialogue help that customer self-educate and i think buying us one key thing the second is people continue to want to like try the product before they buy the product so i think i think it's a welcome step that people can do that like free trials etc and product-led growth has been talked about quite a lot but i mm-hmm. think that's quite an interesting an interesting shift over the last oh, three four five years where companies have built very successful businesses off the concept of giving people a free trial, see what they value, see what people would be willing to pay for, and then just growing the business from there. Talk to you about that, about the free trial, because I have my concerns. I get the, and I understand the attraction in it. My concerns always, and I had this recently myself with a piece of software. I'm used to using a particular video editing software and then somebody said try this and I look at it and because I'm not I'm just not used to it there's a huge learning curve and no doubt if I come through that it may be better than what I have at the moment but I was completely put off by that feeling stupid because I'm looking at this how do you do this how do you get around that yeah I think it's like some of it's going to be case by case right like it are we seeing people coming through the free trial that are getting stuck in a particular area. So being able to identify that and then ask questions, why are they getting there? What can we help we make more clear? How can we help them through this friction point? So I think there's like a lot of stuff that we can do from a product perspective, but then there's also things that you can do from a sales perspective. So like quite often we've had customers that are doing a combination of doing more like a traditional type sales engagement where discovery, things like that, but in parallel, we're speaking to, we're across the business with marketing analytic development products, but typically developers, like the last thing they ever want to do is speak to a salesperson, but they will want to get their hands and actually use the product. So I think it's been useful to like also help 
more traditional cell cycles and really just to be able to get people who prefer to actually get their hands on the technology rather than speak to salespeople to get them on board and really demonstrate through the product how it could be a value to them. I'm wondering if there's a halfway house. It would probably depend on the value of the software or depending on the value of the customer ultimately is to have it where it's rather than it's a free trial, it's a, it's a trial process whereby they have to go through certain learnings as well. So they have to attend a class. Now that can be online, on demand, I should say, or it can be live, but it's okay, here, getting started. And now you're, now you go ahead and implement this. And once you've done that, it ticks off the next bit of the process. So it's that kind of managed process. I've not seen anybody do it. Maybe they are. I'm just not, my eyes are open to it, but I would have thought that would make far more sense because you're also building the relationship with that particular prospect and you're also learning, really, you're getting into their issues and challenges as you go along. We're in a kind of a demo. You can go so far, but if you had that process, every time you interact with them, you can say, okay, why or how do you plan on using this? What challenge are you trying to overcome with this? And you're drawing them in. But you might tell me that people are doing that already. I don't know. I just haven't seen it. Yeah, I think there's, there is some things being done already. There's a concept of, if you imagine a typical bowling alley where you kind of roll the ball down and hit all the pins. A lot of people talk about putting the bumpers up either side. So like we, we create mm. parts that people can go down and we make sure there's guardrails in place so they ultimately can get down to the right outcome. But yeah, I think it's an interesting concept of potentially mixing the few, but I think in order to make that sustainable, it would probably need to be pretty high, pretty high value software in order to mix both salespeople and product together because obviously you've got all the overheads of hiring salespeople, training them and so on. Unless you were to capture it somewhere that would need to be on demand and then of course you lose the interrogative element of it so swings around about yeah. And I think some of the best some of the best things though are, are it's really the questions that you have to ask are the important thing. So Yeah and you can't do that if it's on demand. You can't do it, and it's just trying to help. Like, what are the like? What is the actual problem that we're trying to solve? And yes, they'll have problems they're aware of, but they might have some issues or challenges that you know that are going to come in the next. Once they solve this initial problem, they're going to have this other problem, and they're not aware of that yet. But if we can help guide them that, then I think there's value value in that, and it probably helps people actually start rather than just getting like stuck early on and this seemed mm. like too big of a chain to your point with the video editing software it's i know it might be better for me in the longer but i need mm. to actually get going and do the first few reps so i guess if there's more content or maybe depending on what the software is people to help get through those first few steps and reps then yeah, yeah i think it could be interesting we're almost up on time rob a couple of quick questions for you desert island you're going to be marooned on a desert island don't know when you're going to be rescued what would you take? What one thing would you take with you? Hopefully, my wife would be there as well. If not, I'd take my wife. If she was there already, I'd probably take some good books and journal. I did say I want one thing. You're getting greedy now. <laughs> I'm a salesperson. Come on. <laughs> Dead right. Yeah. Forget the rules. I got to take this and this. Bring all this ship with me. All right. So then let me just change that ever so slightly. Your house is burning down and your wife is safe. If you have any pets, they're safe. I did, you didn't mention children. Do you have, they're safe. Your com- phone and your computer, all safe. 
and you have time to run back in and rescue one item in your house, what would it be? I've got some nice family photos. They'd definitely be the ones i take. And then final question, Rob. If there's a book written about your life, what would you like the title of it to be? Think Perseverant. I like it. Simple yeah. point. I think it's just yeah. thing like momentum will come and go. Things will be mm. are gonna be very easy, then you you go to the next stage of it and all of a sudden they get hard. But if you keep showing up and keep getting the reps in, uh, again, mm. just just the process, you'll get there in the end. Where has perseverance been an important element of your story so far? I think it's just like continuing to push yourself and learn. Like we've done, I've done some like marathons, things like that, that I, sometimes I get into some wagers with my father that I probably shouldn't. And one in particular was just like, you're too busy. You just don't have enough time to do a marathon. Don't just forget about it. So Instead of forgetting about it, I moved my laptop out and we started looking at the races that were coming up. And so there was one coming up in Munich in nine weeks' time. And he said, look, just don't. And I was like, actually, what was the fastest time you ran your marathon in? Which was three hours, 30 minutes. And uh, yeah, he, I said, okay, I'll tell you what, and I'll buy you a plane ticket and I'll register for this marathon now and you're going to come over to Munich and I'll see you at the finish line. The wager was set and... Yeah, so a lot of perseverance was needed to basically go from running three or four miles at a time to running the full marathon, pretty decent time. So a lot of perseverance mm. was needed, but thankfully we did. I did meet each other at the finish line and I did beat it by just a couple of minutes. You did it under 3.30? Yeah, three 3.27 and it was also 26 to dance on the day when it was supposed to be. The averages at the time of year were like 13 or 14. But my Irish yeah. complexion, I, I feel that was worth an extra point or two. Yeah, that's amazing, Rob. Absolutely amazing. Anybody who understands marathon timings and so on, anything under 3.30 is absolutely amazing. And is your father still doing them? No, it's not. He hung up his... his. When he was saying don't do it, was that negative psychology or did he genuinely mean don't do it? Because it worked. If it was negative psychology, it certainly worked. It definitely did work, but he lost the bet. But I think, I don't know. I think he was just probably the, I'm not, I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure. Yeah. Because the reason why I think that is because it happened to me, and it's a few years ago now, but I was in my early 40s, and it was February, and the, the, the marathon in Ireland is in the end of October. And I, my wife had suggested that I take up running as a hobby, and I said, he had joked me. She, I said, I hated running. And I did. I genuinely hated the idea of running. And she said, yeah, look, you're probably too old anyway. And that was it. Eight months later, I crossed the finish line. So I understand the power of, <laughs> listen, forget it. There's no way you can do this. <laughs> There's nothing more powerful to a certain personality. But it's so true. Like, I think people, it was one of the best learnings that I had. I was reading, You Can't kind of Hurt Me by David Goggins at the same time as well. And he talked about people have this, like, when people think they've done all they could possibly do, they're probably actually only at 40% of their actual capability. And this like really struck me. I don't know if you're familiar with the book, but he had some amazing life and all the things that he achieved during his life, particularly when it came to like endurance, endurance sports. But yeah, so I just kept thinking that and it's amazing the mindset shift 
that you can have when you think you're done, you can't run any more miles, but actually you probably could go on yeah. 10, 15 more miles if you really need it. I would love to add that to school curriculum as well, because for a certain for me, it teaches you so many things. And what you're saying is one of the most powerful elements of it is that when you think you're done, there's a lot more, you can push yourself to do a lot more when your body doesn't want to just do any more. Or I remember getting to the third, I did 13 miles and it was just in training. So I remember coming back to my front door and fell in the door. And my son said to me, if you're like this after 13 miles, how are you going to do 26 I said, same way as I got here, one foot in front of the other. And, exactly. and it was true. Like, you can't see it, but if you trust the process, that's, and I think that was the message. If you just trust the process, put in the work, it will come, barring injuries and all that kind of stuff. Well, sadly, we're up in time, and I've really enjoyed the conversation. Many more marathons to you, and all the best with your future with M-Particle. Sounds like you're on a great trajectory and exciting times ahead for you. Great. Thanks for having me, Paul. It's been a pleasure being here as well. <laughs>